You're listening to 311. Women and minorities in the mass media. Here we are, week three. I have two podcasts this week. Uh, The first one's going to be on video games, and the second one will be on Disney, which is another one of my favorites. You guys know by now all the classes are my favorites. Uh, But in any case, I wanted to give you a quick look back and just review uh, a few of your comments from last week. First of all, I don't want you to think that you're just sending those discussion board comments out into the ether. I am reading them. I love to see what you found interesting about the podcast. I'd love to see your feedback. Uh, And just to give you a quick summary, this past week, um, almost everyone mentioned that they were surprised by the number of Arab Americans that are Christian. Um, And I do want to clarify this to make sure you understand. We're talking about Arab Americans. These are people from one of the 22 Arab states that are now living in America full time. Um, Almost all of you were surprised by the facts that we discussed from Aladdin, uh, specifically how many people in our country would vote to bomb Agrabah. Yes, that's mind-blowing statistics. Um, And... Tons of you mentioned how much you loved Nora and how much that interview really resonated with you. And I want you to know I copied all of your comments that mentioned her and sent them to her because I know that she would love seeing how much uh, you guys enjoyed that interview. And so in addition to the comments you left on the discussion board, um, one of you actually reached out to me because you want to discuss your response to the last week's podcast. So let's listen in on that interview. I, I felt like I had kind of a unique viewpoint to this as well, because I live right outside of New York and um, I was, you know, directly impacted by 9-11 um also my my dad is a fireman so he he lost friends in 9-11 and I had friends who lost parents in 9-11 and when 9-11 happened I mean I I literally had ash falling in my front yard um but what I've noticed is that and, and, you know, I travel a lot around the country. I know people from a lot of different states. And then obviously I came to South Carolina for college. So what I've noticed is that it, it, I've, I, I've, I've noticed that a lot of times um, I've seen Islamophobia from people who weren't affected by 9-11 more so than people who were. Oh, that's interesting. And I think the re I, I've like racked my brain about it. And I think the reason is that when nine 11 affected, um, people, you know, who live in New York and the surrounding areas, we were, we weren't looking for, you know, to blame someone. We weren't looking to point fingers. We were looking more to unite by ourselves and, and, you know, come together and overcome and rebuild and, and, and share love. And I think people who weren't affected because they, they didn't have that rebuilding process to, Mm. to focus on, they were, um, looking for who to blame and who was responsible for this. Wow. That's fascinating. Yeah. So I've, I've really noticed that, um, because I, I, I mean, I'm lucky enough that I came from a community where I really never um, 
saw Islamophobia or racism towards Arab Americans. I mean, I live in an actually like a pretty big Arab American community um, being from around New York. I live in a really diverse community. Um, And then it was kind of when I left to that little bubble is when I would start to hear comments of, oh my God, that person's wearing a, a turban. I, I don't feel safe around them. And I was it, it shocked me because I, I never really heard comments like this until I was in college. And I had never experienced that. And I thought it was so fascinating that being, you know, so close to where 9-11 happened, it was almost the complete opposite of, of what you would expect. It was, I feel like it was people who weren't really around it at that time that were looking more for who is responsible, who's to blame for this, who can I point my finger at? Yeah, I think that's important because basically what you're saying is you knew Arab Americans as neighbors. Yes. And so when the attack happened, you were able to clearly separate these are terrorists and these are neighbors. Yes. Whereas people who maybe had never known an Arab American just easily lump them all into one group as terrorists. Yes, and that's a really good way to um, put it into a few words. <laughs> yeah, no, that's um, fascinating. I had never considered that, but it, I love hearing your explanation on it. That's fascinating. Yeah, and, and like you said, because these people who you know were my neighbors, my classmates, my friends, it was also really sad seeing... In the you know in the in the time after nine eleven, they kind of felt this this kind of not guiltiness, but they mm-hmm. felt as though people were going to judge them oh, because wow. of nine eleven. So I feel like at least the community that I grew up in did um, even more of a job to make them feel welcomed and make them feel not to blame because. You know, we we were able to distinguish. Whereas I feel like people who aren't, uh, who didn't grow up with yeah. a lot of diversity in their community, weren't able to make that um, distinguishment. Yeah, no, I think that's I think that's so important. I'm so glad. I'm so glad that you called to uh, to chat about that. So yes, yeah, so thank you so much for um, your overwhelming response to the Arab Americans podcast. I'm really glad that y'all are enjoying them because I'm having a blast making them. So without further ado, let's switch our attention to video games. So we'll start with some statistics. Um, So first of all, 64% of U.S. households own a device that they use for video games. Um, I felt like that seemed high to me, uh, but some of these statistics do seem high. And so what I'm going to say is I feel like these statistics include phones and tablets, not just gaming consoles. So in any case, 64% of U.S. households own a device they use for video games. 60% of Americans play video games daily. Again, I have to believe that this is counting cell phones. This one gets me as a parent. Uh, 70% of parents believe that video games have a positive influence on their children's lives. Um, I'll just leave that right there. Uh, 45% of U.S. gamers are women. And 67% of parents play video games with their child at least once weekly. So again, I, I, um, 
I just don't know. I mean, I didn't grow up in a household where we had a lot of gaming consoles. And so I struggle to see that. We don't have a lot in our house today. So maybe I'm just completely in the minority on that one. Uh, but in any case, um, I did get a chance to speak with one of you this week that uh, defines themselves as a gamer. So let's take a lesson on that interview. So for a long time, actually, I wanted to be a video game designer. Mm. Um, and I took a bunch of coding classes. I was actually in AP computer science in high school and also... Uh, I was a part of like a Georgia Tech women's coders program, oh, so I was really involved um, in that community. Um, and then I kind of just like looked around one day, and I was like, I don't want to be at a desk my entire life, just like <laughs> looking at a computer. So I definitely switched gears, and um, now I'm focused more in the entertainment business like broadly okay so what kind of games do you enjoy playing um i have a ps4 so i um definitely play a lot more um like console games compared to like computer games Ah. um but i kind of am across the board right now i'm really into call of duty warzone uh, which is basically kind of like a upgrade from fortnite um but and that's what I do that's what like the games I play mostly but if I also like casually play video games on uh my phone so just like connect the dots uh like simple candy crush like kind of like more simplistic games like that so I'm glad you mentioned that and I'll apologize for my dog in the background but we no worries editor out so we just move forward (laughs) (laughs) okay so as a gamer do you consider the games on your phones like what you're talking about candy crush as a video game just like you would call of duty like they're both yes. video games, just different types. Yeah, and I think I definitely, I definitely consider that mostly because I know how much work goes behind the scenes. Ah. So I think that I come looking at it like with that approach. Okay, that's cool because some of the statistics that we look at, I'm not a gamer, and so I'm not really familiar with the industry that much. And the statistics we look at um, make no sense unless we're considering both both of those things, right? Unless you're considering people playing Candy Crush on their phone, a video game just like Call of Duty. Um, Okay, so that's good to know. So then another question, you said that's what you like to play. When you were thinking about being a designer, what kind of games did you want to design? Uh, I wanted to design more, uh, like, experience games, um, ones that had more of a storyline. Why? Because I've always... Well, now I'm shifting gears into, like, uh, cinematography and because I've always had, like, a fascination with movies. Oh, that's cool. Um, and I just thought that would kind of be, like, my uh, like a hobby growing up, and now I'm trying to make it a career. But, so, yeah, I was – I just wanted to have some – design something that uh, you could, like, follow along with and, like, be involved in the storyline. That's cool. Okay, so as a woman playing video games, what did you think about uh, representation of women in video games? Uh, Just when I was younger, especially, I just noticed that it was, like, pretty horrible in the sense that um, all of, like, the characters that I saw, especially in games that were, like, 
like curated for um, a male audience. They were all like really skinny waist and always wore like crop tops and like had like big boobs and um, would just be like kind of what we what we talked about in um, previous. Uh, lectures and in the dream worlds three documentary just like kind of curated for uh the male fantasy but i think it's slowly getting better did did you mind it i mean you still enjoy playing the game so did you did you where you had any kind of thoughts where i can't play that game this woman is just horribly you know well i think that there was so like there were at least for me there were like so many limited games that i like enjoyed to play like enjoyed playing so i just kind of like brushed it off and i was like i mean the game's still fun so okay i'll play it anyways right just like we can watch a movie that you know has a horribly sexist representation and still laugh right yeah okay as long as we're looking at it critically Okay, so let's take a look at a couple more stats. So here's some interesting things. Um, The average gamer age is 34, right? Uh, The average female video game player is 36. The average male video game player is 32. But either way, they're in their mid-30s. Now, the majority of women, including women who play video games themselves, still believe that most video game players are men. Um, But really, there's no race or ethnicity difference in who plays video games. Um, But Hispanics were more likely than whites or blacks to say that the term gamer describes them well. Um, I found those statistics fairly interesting because, frankly, I would have expected the average gamer age to be younger. Um, and I would have expected it to skew male, uh, but it really doesn't, um, and it does skew older. So there you go, uh, proven wrong every day. Today's no different. <laughs> so, uh, 56% of the most frequent gamers play multiplayer games at least once a week, spending an average of seven hours playing with others online and six hours playing with others in person. Now, this is fascinating to me, and every semester when I bring this up, um, the students immediately say, oh yeah, absolutely, this totally happens because uh, my boyfriend or my brother or my uncle or my dad or me, whatever, we have separate televisions that we use for video games and we will actually carry the TV over to a friend's house so that we can all play together, like sitting in the same room. Uh, I never would have imagined that, but every single semester, the class is basically just looks at me like, yeah, duh, of course that's what happens. Um, so again, totally out of the out of field on that one. Um, 46% of gamers say that it helps their family spend time together. And this one, I just frankly don't believe. 94% of parents say that they pay attention to the video games played by their child. Um, I just frankly don't believe that. That's, that's almost... And I've seen enough of kids playing on their phones in restaurants to know that the parents are not even a little bit aware. So that one I just really, really struggle to believe. So, okay, I mean, that's the games themselves. But what if you wanted to be somebody who designed video games? Um, I wonder how diverse that is. Um, Well, there are 2,711 video game companies in the United States, which employ a total of a little bit over 65,000 people. Uh, The average salary is $97,000, which is solid. I'd take it. Um, Only 21% of video game designers are female. Uh, But what was surprising to me 
is 1% of video game developers are African-American, 5% are Latino, and 18% are Asian. So we're going to listen to a portion of a TEDx, um, specifically from an African-American male, talking about how um, he saw himself reflected in the video games that he played. Uh, but not only are most designers white men, um, 81% also identify as heterosexual. So you're talking about an environment that is very heteronormative, very white, and very male, which definitely has influence over the games that are produced and the characters that are in those games. So let's listen to a little bit of that TEDx video. This is Andre Demise from TEDx Toronto. I've been a gamer just about all of my life. And one of my most vivid memories as a gamer was Christmas of 1990. And I remember waking up that morning and running down the stairs as fast as I could. And underneath the Christmas tree, the biggest box had my name on it. And when I tore this gift open, I couldn't describe to you how excited I was to find a Sega Genesis. It was awesome. I, no, you guys really have to understand how cool this was. Like, I could, I could use this box, and no matter what else was going on in my life, I could escape to other worlds and other universes, other realities. I could be a, a hero cop who's out to save his city from this ruthless crime syndicate. I could be a, a hacker in Seattle in the year 2050 trying to solve the mystery of my brother's murder. I could, I could be Michael Jackson and take down the bad guys with the power of dance. <laughs> but one thing I started to understand as a young black gamer is, well, when I played video games as a young black gamer, I, I didn't often see characters who looked like me. And even more rare than that, was seeing characters who looked like me that I would ever actually want to be like. And what I was starting to understand in my young imagination was the concept of representation before I had the vocabulary to describe it. I want to pause right there for a second and just throw out a few more statistics and information for you. Uh, Marcus Montgomery, a game designer, uh, is quoted as saying, there's always going to be a critical nuance that's more explored if you are from a particular demographic. I'm a heterosexual male, and I have no idea what it's like to be a lesbian woman. I don't think any kind of research is going to allow me to get the right nuance. So again, if most of the gaming industry is white, male, and heterosexual, uh, can they truly create a diverse, nuanced character? Well, uh, Pew Research Center asked some audience members what they thought about representation. And what they found was that really people were unsure if video games portrayed minorities or women poorly. 40% were unsure that they portrayed women poorly, and 47% were unsure if they portrayed minorities poorly. Um, however, the most interesting statistic is on the flip side of that percent. 33% of gamers do not think that minorities are portrayed poorly. And only 9% of gamers do think minorities are portrayed poorly. Uh, when it comes to women, they're um, very similar numbers. 26% uh, of gamers do not think women are portrayed poorly, and 16% do think women are portrayed poorly. Let's pop back over to Andre. For a lot of black gamers, the way that we see ourselves represented, and I would say gamers of color too, 
we've got a couple of options. We've got either bad representation or no representation at all. And, and 26 years after I got that gift, I don't think the issue has changed very much. In fact, in some ways, I think it's gotten worse. Well, if I was to describe to you your average black character in a game, it might go a little something like this. They would probably be physically imposing, probably be like a massive character, mean, knows the streets, fought his way up from poverty, might have a mouth on him, but usually he lets his fists or his guns do the talking. Now, I wanna, I wanna call attention to my homeboy here, Barrett Wallace from Final Fantasy VII, one of my favorite characters from one of my favorite games, but I can't get around the fact that my guy has a gun for an arm. <laughs> okay, so what's it like for, for black women characters? Well, in the history of gaming, there have been less than 20 playable black women characters in the history of ever when it comes to gaming. And uh, I'll give you one example. In the game Uncharted 4, uh, which is you know, the fourth game in the franchise and a very popular franchise uh, for the PlayStation consoles, our hero Nathan Drake has gone from continent to continent in search of lost treasures and lost artifacts. And it's until the fourth game where he actually encounters a black woman. And when he does, he meets our friend here, Nadine Ross. And Nadine has to be fought by the player hand to hand in order for the game to proceed. So this is what black women are often taught about themselves through gaming, that they're less people than they are obstacles to be overcome, to be dominated, oftentimes fought, oftentimes killed. By the way, Uncharted is rated T for teens, 13 and up. So maybe time to rethink the way that we do our rating system. Now, are there characters that don't fall under these stereotypes? Yes, absolutely, there are. But in the games from the years 2007 to 2012, if you looked at the 50 most popular games, two-thirds of the characters were white. And if you cross out athletes and you cross out celebrities from those games, what you end up is with 3% representation for black characters. You'll also get five for women. I don't mean 5%, I mean literally five women in these games, two of which, by the way, are playable characters. So even though women make up 52% of the gaming audience, they're often romantic partners and damsels in distress, basically trophies for male characters to collect. Now, there are games like role-playing games, RPGs, where you can create your own character, which is great because if you aren't seeing yourself represented in the game, then you can just go ahead and create a character. But if you look at the Elder Scrolls series, which is a very popular series, I happen to love it myself, you can be all kinds of characters. You can be a human or an elf or a lizard person or a cat person, all kinds of different cool characters. But each of those classes, each of those races has different attributes. So for example, woodland elves are, are skilled in archery, they're skilled in sneaking. And, and orcs, they're, they're tough, they're strong, they're durable. But this list of attributes cuts across human races too. And one of those human races is called the Redguard race. And Redguards have very similar skin and hair and facial features like you'd find with black people right here on this earth. Now, in order to be a, a mage, a magic user in the Elder Scrolls universe, you have to be high in attributes like willpower and intelligence. Those just happen to be the attributes that Redguards lack. So, what does this mean for a black parent who buys a game for their 17-year-old daughter? 
it means that when that black girl plays the video game, she's more likely to play as a, a speedy blue hedgehog or a pink marshmallow puff or a ninja turtle than she is to play as someone who looks like herself. And even when she can play as somebody who looks like herself, that character might be too stupid to be a wizard. Now, you might ask yourself, is it possible that we could create better representation by getting people of color into the industry and making it more diverse? Yeah, maybe. But I, I spoke to my friend Manvir Eyre, and Manvir has worked for some of the top gaming companies in the last 10 years, made some really awesome video games, and what he told me was that as a person of color in the workplace, he puts himself at risk if he speaks up about these subjects. Not only does he risk alienating himself from colleagues, he also risks finding enemies online, people who are all too happy to flood him with abuse and with harassment for trying to create a better industry. And since he mentioned Temple Run, I wanted to pause right here for just one more second. So I don't know how many of y'all are familiar with a 12-year-old girl named Maddie that sort of took on Temple Run a couple of years ago. Uh, 2015, I believe it was to be exact. So Maddie was a big Temple Run fan, and what she quickly realized is if she wanted to play as a girl in Temple Run, she had to pay for the girl character. Uh, and she noticed that in a lot of the in a lot of the games similar to Temple Run. So she ended up downloading the 50 most popular games in the same category as Temple Run, and she counted up how many of them offered female characters and how much they cost. She hand wrote her results on a spreadsheet. Out of the 50 games, 37 offered free male characters. Just five offered free female characters. And she said, I was hoping there would be more girls, but there just weren't. And I was kind of bummed, like, come on. It's not fair, because if I'm being forced to play as a boy, like, why? And so here's a little bit more of her data. She said that, she could unlock some of the female characters in a lot of the games by playing games and amassing credit, but of course that takes hours, or she could just buy them. On average, the female costs $7.53. In one Disney game, there was just one female character, and she cost about $30. So Maddie writes an op-ed with her research results, and the Washington Post published it. Uh, everybody saw it, including the makers of Temple Run. Temple Run, by the way, was designed by a husband-wife team. And she says, uh, the wife, Natalia, says when they were making Temple Run, they realized a lot of the people playing the game were female. So they added female characters. And since Temple Run itself was free, they decided to charge for those new characters. The female characters didn't have special powers in the original game, but still 60% of the players were female and the women characters brought in a lot of cash, right? This is. This is an industry, right? They need to make money on the games that they sell. But again, this is, uh, economists call this price discrimination, right? Knowing that you've got a lot of women playing the games, that women are gonna wanna pay for the female characters, so you charge for them. That is a form of sexist discrimination. But to their credit, uh, Natalia, the wife of the Temple, the Temple Run creator pair said, Maddie's got a point, and this is a quote, for all of our good intentions and for all of my good intentions, it is true that you start out with this male character, the white male is always the default, and anything else, it's like you have to work for it. Um, and so Natalia and her husband wrote a letter specifically to Maddie and said, you're right, 
there will soon be a free female character in Temple Run. Apparently, Disney's also going to change its pricing. They'll no longer charge $30 for their character, but it doesn't say that they won't still charge. Um, the makers of one game actually went one step further. They created a new female character and called her Maddie. Now I want to take a look at a game that is a very interesting case study. And each semester when I bring this up, um, students are very polarized on what they think about this game. But for those of you that have ever played it, the game is called Mafia 3. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to start by playing you guys the trailer. And then after the trailer, I will give you sort of a background on the plot. I will just say this game is rated M for Mature. So there's a, there's a little bit of language in the trailer. And I apologize up front for that. Uh, but I do want you to hear it all. Did you help Lincoln Clay murder Sal Marcano and all prominent members of his crime family? You're goddamn right I did. Marked the largest number of casualties in the ongoing conflict. If you get sleep, or if you get night, do this quiet. Away from here. And check the cupboard for your daddy's gun. The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. The Lord's gonna come for your firstborn son. Nothing you do will bring any of them back. Go to the river where the water runs. It's it took me months to figure out that Lincoln had survived the massacre and was waging a war against Sal Marcano. Jesus just crazy on the cross. I heard you were dead. Been hearing that a lot. It's over. This is never going to be over. But though you live to let him drown alive. I'm gonna keep going, you got nine more! Yeah, I shot him right in the head. Once. I was just, you shot him once. So like I said, this is really interesting. So this game is set in 1968, New Bordeaux, uh, Louisiana. It's clearly meant to be New Orleans, Louisiana. Uh, the protagonist is Lincoln Clay. He's a 23-year-old biracial male orphan that was raised by the mob. Now, in this game, racism runs rampant, and that is by design. The game maker said this is what it was like to occupy this space as a young black man in the 1968 South. So what they were trying to do was give people a chance to see what it actually felt like to be a 23-year-old biracial man in New Orleans in 1968. So background music is era-specific. There's news broadcasts that they play that reflect the period. Uh, missions include things like dismantling the KKK and other white supremacists. There are racial slurs, hateful acts towards African Americans. And as the creators say, the police watch you always. 
uh, clay is not welcome in many places within the game because of his race, right? So again, it's meant to be a lot like 1968 New Orleans. So he can't go into certain places because he's a black man. Uh, Bigotry is consistent. Women are mob leaders and run smuggling operations. So it's a very interesting concept, right? The idea is to give people, you know, presumably white males, the opportunity to see what it feels like to be a black man in 1968. But then at the same time, is it perpetuating those racist stereotypes? I've never played the game. I don't really know. But what I can tell you is normally when I bring this up in class, there's always one person that raises their hand and says, I've played it. It's an awesome game. And it really does immerse you into that culture. I've learned by playing this game. um, And you know in the game that the racist stereotypes are horrible and wrong. But you as the player have to sort of over come that. Um, So one of the creators for Mafia 3 was quoted as saying, we're not so naive as to think that a single game could cure racism, and that was never our intent. But at the end of the day, if we make people think about race and we make people think about what's happening, I think we've done something that very few games have done. Now, we spent some time talking about race, a little bit talking about gender. I want to flip back to a situation called Gamergate, Um, and this one is gender-specific. So this is uh, a lady named Anita Sarkeesian. She runs a channel on YouTube called Feminist Frequency, Um, and she's got a little intro video that I'm going to play for you. Um, It's mostly music with text overlays. So I'm going to play the music in the background, um, and then I will read the text overlay until at one point it cuts to a clip of her on the Stephen Colbert show, and I'll let you hear their voices for that. Feminist Frequency was founded in 2009 by Anita Sarkeesian. In 2012, Feminist Frequency ran a successful campaign on Kickstarter for the video series Tropes vs. Women in Video Games. It was funded 2,648%, right? So it's pretty popular. Millions of views later, the video series was met with critical acclaim, and it is awesome, I have to say, which also made Anita a visible target of Gamergate. Um, There were articles run in the New York Times, Time, Rolling Stone. She was heavily, heavily targeted. Saving them. They're damsels in distress. I'm saving the princess. Am I supposed to let the princess die? Is that what you want? That's kind of harsh. That's kind of hostile. Well, maybe the princess shouldn't be a damsel, and she could save herself. Well, they've got games where, they've got games. <laughs> I didn't know you brought a posse. Video goes on to show Anita speaking at uh, TEDx, um, as well as other national events. Um, she was also invited to speak at colleges. Uh, she's gone on to create more videos, including her most recent project, The Frequency Show. Um, and it's called Manufacturing a Muslim Menace. Uh, she does a wonderful job, and even she's done all of this um, while experiencing horrible um, death threats, right? So she was supposed to go speak at, uh, I believe, the University of Utah, and before a week before she spoke, uh, the college got a threat that it would be the largest mass shooting in the history of mass shootings if she came on campus. And so naturally, they canceled that appearance. 
Now, this is interesting because it's not just Anita that's gotten these death threats. There are female journalists in the gaming industry that write articles that also get death threats. So hashtag Gamergate goes beyond just Anita Sarkeesian. Um, it's been called an internet culture war. Women writing these articles receive highly graphic and disturbing threats uh, specifically to them. Um, and their argument is they're saying they're lashing out because we're challenging the status quo of gaming as a male dominated space. Uh, so basically, they're terrorizing women for being involved in the industry. Um, some journalists have withdrawn from the industry. Um, several that were attacked have moved to different addresses and different homes. Um, Anita has gone on to create other shows. She continues to speak out against the industry. Uh, Jen Frank, one of the gaming journalists who withdrew from the industry, said after she withdrew after harassment, she said, Gamergate is less about ethics and more about drowning out critics of traditional, patriarchal, dude-dominated gaming culture. I have one more student interview that I wanted to play for y'all. Uh, this particular student has a different um, take on gaming. Um, and I do feel like sometimes gaming has very polarizing viewpoints. So we heard from one student at the beginning that actually wanted to grow up and be uh, a game you know, maker, uh, this student has a completely opposite take of that. So I wanted to make sure that we hear both sides to that story. Well, I feel like as a person of my age, I am like one of the rare people that do not actually like video games. And it's, I haven't come across many other, whether it's girls or guys where I, they're in the same boat. Cause growing up, I was, I was not allowed to have like electronics of any sort. Mm. I mean, I could have a computer. That was about it. Um, and so I learned, I mean, my childhood was playing board games and card games with my grandparents. And that's kind of still how it is today. Mm -hmm. um, just the other day, I was speaking to someone about what they've been doing during quarantine. And they were like, oh, I have spent four hours playing video games today because I have nothing else to do. Wow. I was like, that is a little bit much. <laughs> and they were explaining to me about how someone had gotten some new game and played it for 48 hours straight and have already beaten the game. Oh, and I'm just gosh. like, oh, there's got to be better things to do than right. just to play video games right now, especially like when you're bored. Right. It was oh, uh, video games and relationships. Oh, I hate that. I would. <laughs> I was seeing someone actually, and whenever we would hang out, that's that's what he wanted to do. He wanted to play video games while oh. I would just sit there watching him. And it's just mm -hmm. like this. This is not fun. Right. It's very awkward I mean just watching you sure I get it you really enjoy video games you get into it you know you can play with your friends when you're away or you can play in the same room together but I've just never really understood the fascination about it so always love hearing different perspectives and what all of us think, right? Everybody has different feelings regarding movies and television shows and books and things of that nature. And I think that's the best part about a large lecture class. And so with that final thought, I want to kick it back over to Andre and let him wrap this up for us. There are characters out there that I've seen, like uh, my friend Samuel, a freedom fighter who is out to save the world. Characters like Elizabeth, Regular black girl doing regular black girl things like having her walk in the park become a, a mad dash to escape an army of squirrels. Characters like the sun god Ra, who's trying to save his kingdom from collapsing. Now this is all well and good, but this is on the creation side. What about the consumer side? Now as consumers, you have a role to play here too. And I hope I've opened your eyes to what it's like for gamers of color, what it is that we go through. And I'm going to ask you to please keep your eyes open. 
When you see games that get it right, when you see games where the characters put in the work to offer good representation to gamers of color, recommend it, talk to your friends, buy those games, support those companies. And if game companies are going to rely on lazy and outdated stereotypes, then don't buy those games. Give them bad online reviews, even write the developers. Take your business elsewhere. I'm gonna ask you as an audience and as consumers, the next time you pick up a video game controller, or the next time you buy a game for your child, ask yourself this question. How much skin do I have in the game? Awesome ending. I can't think of a better way to wrap that up. So thanks for listening to the video game podcast, y'all. And I will see you again this week um, with the Disney podcast. But as always, stay safe, wash your hands, and stay classy, 311. Thank you.